Welcome to the Now Next podcast, where we talk about exploring and finding your meaningful now and meaningful next. What are you called to now? And what are you called to in these next stages of life? I am Drew Tucker. I'm the university pastor and director of the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. And I am one of your hosts this season, along with my friend, former student, current student, podcast producer extraordinaire, and now pretty much a biblical scholar after a semester of seminary, Mary Claire Kunkel. That's all you need. I'm an expert now. I'm Mary Claire Kunkel. Um, I'm a first year MDS student at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And today we're going to be continuing on with embodiment, which we've been talking about all Advent, which makes sense because it's Advent and God's coming down to be with us. So just a little refresher on embodiment. You know, humans have bodies. And that's kind of how we navigate the world is through them and through our senses. And in previous episodes, we talked a little bit about the whole mind-body problem and all of the things we love to problematize about the fact that we live in bodies. And then with Catherine Poe, we talked about embodiment and disability and advocacy and how your body really, really plays a lot in just your call in the world. And we're continuing that today, talking about Jesus and embodiment as we're trying to figure out our vocations, aka any meaningful life-giving work for the world. And none of it's linear. You learn and then you unlearn and then you relearn and you're taking five steps forward, four steps back, three to the side, do a turn. It's a lot of fun and also not fun sometimes. So Drew, could you tell us a little bit about our guest? Yes, I thought we were going to do the hokey pokey there for a minute. Um, So that's what it's all about. I am so excited to introduce our guest today, the Reverend Doctor, as he loves to be called, Dave Delaney, uh, who is the Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries for the Virginia Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. He is a graduate of our very own Trinity Lutheran Seminary, got a PhD at the University of Virginia, and for those longtime listeners, knew Samantha DiBiasa, one of our former hosts, for many years before we got to know and love her here. Dave's also a musician, a Beatles fanatic, a spouse, a parent, and so many other things. So Dave, welcome. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Mary Claire. It's it's great, great to be with you all. And uh, I'll just say, I don't necessarily love to be called the Reverend Doctor. <laughs> that's, a, that's a title that's been imposed upon me, although I have come to a new appreciation of it partly as a result of coming to terms with privilege. I realized uh, several years ago that, you know, simply telling people, oh, just call me Dave. I mean, it really a little bit was um, kind of an affront uh, or I say a presentation of how easily I could do that and still get away with some of the authority that had been granted to me, where others who had worked hard for that and whose whose, uh, position and credentials was still gonna be questioned no matter what, really didn't have that luxury. So I thought I've warmed up to it a little bit if, if that, if for no other reason than that. So I'm uh, okay with it. Uh, I do, uh, years ago, I would tell people that uh, my name was Dave or they could call me by my street name, which was also Dave. And so they, <laughs> they I like could it. Choose, choose whatever they wanted to call me. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've 
spent uh, all of my career pastorally in uh, the Virginia Senate of the ELCA uh, in several locations here in Virginia. Happened to also have graduated from high school in Virginia, got my education in Ohio, went to Wittenberg, not Capital. sorry about that, but Wittenberg before going to Trinity and then um, headed to Virginia for a first call in Yorktown. Spent four years in graduate study at University of Virginia and uh, ended up with a doctorate in uh, classical Christianity and Judaism, sort of a specialty in the uh, reception and interpretation of the scriptures in those early centuries. And it just have maintained a lot of interests that come along with that. And I had to learn a lot of things in order to get through that, that program. Oddly enough, I thought I was going to end up in academia. And uh, I think God had other ideas. I hope that's what has happened. Uh, at least uh, things didn't pan out that way. And I was okay with that. I went back into parish ministry for another eight years before being asked to uh, take on the role here in the bishop's office of a director for the youth and young adult ministries. But throughout all of that, I've had an abiding interest in the formation, faith formation of young people. And just as I've never wavered from that uh, throughout all of these years. And so it's, it's really been something that I have considered important piece of, of my call. Well, we won't call you the Reverend Doctor here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, in fact, knew that and just had to say it because of you, course. you know me, I'm that way. We like to bully people on this podcast. <laughs> That's how we initiate them into the fold. Lord knows I'm used to that from all quarters. So oh no. It'll be, a, it'll be a normal day. Well, you know. So I love that your background is in early Christianity and Judaism interpretation of the scriptures because with our topic, we're talking about embodiment. The way that we come to this idea is through engagement with the scriptures, is through understanding and hearing stories of, in this season, the proclamation, the eventual birth of Jesus as one of us, as a God become human. And so I'm curious, just when you first think about embodiment, what comes to mind? How do you define embodiment, at least in general? By coincidence, one of the things I do here uh, at Roanoke College, where the office of the bishop is located physically, is to teach every once in a while in their department of religion and philosophy. And one of the things I teach is a course that comes up every couple of years called um, The Religious Life of Young Adults, which is a fancy way of talking about youth ministry. Recently, we actually were talking about this because I was trying to introduce to them the term incarnation. And uh, this is not a, a set of folks who's had a lot of background in religion, and they really didn't know much of what these fancy terms meant. So I was trying to give them hints, and I said, and anybody in the class who had Spanish in their background, of course, several of them did, and I said, well, do you see a word here in the middle of incarnation that might give you an idea of what this word means? And they pointed out carne, and I said, okay, what does that mean? And they said, meat. And I thought, that's perfect. Because it's exactly, flesh is, a, is just a kind of a, I don't know, that doesn't really get at the, you know, the power of what it means to have something that can live and die and touched and squeezed and, and hurt. Even people who, who know the story of Jesus will sometimes get quiet or their eyes will get large when you talk about incarnation, meaning uh, having a body that could be hurt, having a body that could die. The, the whole 
point of the incarnation, a body that had to be born and a body that had to eat and go through all the other unpleasant functions that come along with having a body, being a piece of meat that breathes. And so backing away just a tad from the starkness of that description, I think of embodiment as really knowing what it means to have vulnerabilities and being at risk. And I think there's so much in the world and certainly in my life and and in ministry that is oriented towards figuring out whether you're going to be protective of your body and your position or whether you're going to be able to and willing to put yourself at risk. And putting yourself at risk can sometimes involve your body. That's certainly what what Jesus uh, did. And uh, sometimes what we have to do as well. You know, we get close to people, anything that we experience that is emotional or hurtful will inevitably involve our bodies. We've We've started to learn that more and more as the years have gone on, how your body stores the pain that your brain experiences. And so there's embodiment is a powerful word. One must be aware of that when one is dealing with, with anybody. Now, in my position as dealing with teenagers, of course, there's an added dimension there. Not that everybody's bodies are changing. I'm now 64. And I'm starting to see my hearing go, my eyesight getting bad, my hair is falling out, you know, all the things that happen when you get older. Teenagers are in the process of, of violence sometimes. And, um, and again, sometimes a little bit gross experiences with their own bodies and ambivalent experiences with their own bodies. And so one, if one's doing youth ministry, you've got to know what embodiment means. Be willing to say, yeah, this is part of being human. It's a perfectly okay thing to experience. God knows all about it. about being embodied. So with this, like, I I love that, that embodiment is just like so inherently vulnerable. Do you have any practices to help you get in tune with just being in a body that helps you figure out your life-giving work or even just waking up in the morning? I'll start by saying I'm really bad at this. And I've never really gotten good at it, even though I've tried. And I, I've had to be gentle with myself that way. I, but it, it's not, you can't really escape it. So I have to be uh, alert to the signals that my body is sending me. And I do take those kinds of signals much more seriously than I used to. One of the gifts slash responsibilities of growing older is being alert to some of those signals. And so I'm answering this question slightly differently now than I would have, say, 15 years ago and saying that uh, now, yeah, I have to watch things like blood pressure and I have to watch things like um, whether my joints are aching. And the, the spiritual discipline of that is trying to figure out how to take joy in that experience rather than just being resentful because it's easy to be resentful of the problems you have. We are not here to judge how often you use your embodiment practices. I'm relieved. (laughs) I mean, none of it's perfect. That's part of having a body. That's right. Yeah. So with all of that, I'm curious as a pastor and as a theologian, how you relate this idea of embodiment to the witness of Jesus, you know, whether that's through the early church or Judaism or the scriptures or some combination of all of those, how does Jesus relate to our embodiment? I think this is an important question, partly because one of the things that I have observed in this kind of trajectory of theological reflection over the centuries is that there 
is this tendency over time to try to disembody Christianity. And this has always been a temptation. Sometimes it has had a good intent and sometimes it's yielded a really important and useful result. But if one spends all one's time trying to get away from this reality, then it ends up being no good. Yes, I need the word of God, but it turns out I need to eat too. And I got to remind myself of that, leveraging that into an attitude of thanksgiving and dependence on God. Having said that, though, then back up then to, to Jesus, another parallel interest to everything I've studied has been a an abiding interest in the historical geography of the Bible. Uh, one of the best things I ever did was to spend a semester studying uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, it was good because I, I picked up Hebrew language and things like that, but I really spent a lot of time walking and a lot of time in close contact with, with the ground, but particularly uh, Jesus' awareness of the land he was in. I think we lose sight of how connected to the land the ancients were. This was life or death for them. Everywhere they went, they either walked or they sometimes had an animal to ride on. That was rare. Most likely they walked. And especially if you were in a peasant band, the way Jesus and his followers, closest followers were, you were, you were on foot a lot of the time. And they walked a long way and they walked every day. So uh, they were probably uh, in pretty good walking shape, very aware of what they could and couldn't do. Our listeners are probably quite familiar with the stories about foot washing from the uh, Gospels. And once you think about the uh, amount of time that they used their feet to get from place to place, it enhances this understanding of the importance of the washing of the feet. And that is an act of servanthood. So one of the images, the key images from the Gospel of John that Jesus gives to his followers is this whole set of arrangements that we have, this whole cluster of relationships we have is one big exchange of foot washing. We are washing each other's feet. That was his way of saying we're caring for one another in the most important aspect of our lives, and that is how we are moving from one place to another. If you read through all of the Gospels with that in mind, and, and I'm always I'm always fussing at my students because I say if you read the you read the scriptures too fast. You read the, the, the uh, Gospels too fast. You got to slow down. Go start with one sentence and read the next sentence and think of what must have happened in between that the ancients would have taken for granted, but that we, because we move so fast and we've got cars and we can get one place to another so quickly, doesn't even register with us. But think about the number of hours that must have passed simply from in the phrase, Jesus and his disciples went to Galilee. That was probably a couple of days of walking all day. And there are conversations along the way. There are weather changes and heat changes along the way. They have to stop and get water. They have to relieve themselves. They got to figure out what to eat. There are all kinds of things that happen. You know, one of my favorites is, is them going to Caesarea Philippi, which is even farther north than the Sea of Galilee. And it's along that way that Jesus begins that conversation with them. Who do you say that I am? And um, they are not only walking and experiencing their own bodies, but they're experiencing a lot of things that have happened before. Jesus is able to point to things and say, well, you know, I remember what happened here. I remember what happened there. And next thing you know, they are at this uh, temple to Caesar. And then in that context, after two days of walking, and they're sitting there with this wonderful spring of water in the face of the greatest powers in the world, Jesus is able to ask the question, 
who do you say that I am? And once you kind of set your, your mind into that setting, the question takes on a kind of importance that's more than just casual. It's very, very real and very built into both their bodies and into the land they're walking on. I find that so fascinating. Just like thinking about so much of Jesus's life, we don't have in the gospels of him just being a human and how mundanely human Jesus also was by having that human part. Right. And at, at the same time though, in so many like Christian circles, especially, I don't know if you've seen this in your interactions with um, like college students have been taught either intentionally or absorbed it through the air to just hate their bodies and that God can't use our bodies to teach us things about God and about ourselves. And even though that was the whole point of Jesus and it blows my mind. So I'm curious if you have more on that. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this is really interesting. And I think we bear something of a special burden as conveyors of European Christianity to this country. I don't want to beat up on my people too much, but, um, <clears throat> you know, we, uh, we come from uh, in, in the North American Lutheranism and perhaps the bulk of North American Lutheranism from a people who were not particularly effusive. So the whole idea of engaging the faith with one's body was probably not something that was ever on the minds of the Lutherans who came to this country. Part of that was a residue of a theological uh, response to some of the rigors of medieval monasticism. So they said, oh, we're not going to be like that. You know, we're, we're not going to fast and we're not going to you know, do those other things. And part of it was just, uh, <clears throat> if you come from the northern countries, you sit still a lot more. <laughs> So there was a little bit of that going on. Well, I think we're starting to get past that. And it's, and it's useful, I think, for us. A little bit towards the point that, uh, Mayor Claire, I think you were making, and that is this danger we have right now. I just heard another reported about it on the radio today about the increasing concern that we rightly have about young people's attitudes towards their bodies, the fear that they have that their bodies are inadequate somehow against some standard. And that social media is actually making that worse because they're constantly drawn into situations where they're comparing the adequacy of their bodies to some impossible ideal. And I've always hoped that by helping young people understand that their bodies are objects of worship, well, this comes right out of, right, comes right out of Corinthians, you know, the, the temple of the bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, this is very, very real. This was a, a sort of literal understanding that, uh, that God indwells us, and therefore uh, we worship with our bodies, um, that that would make a difference in that. I don't know if it is or not. I hope so. But I keep trying to press our young people to see themselves as uh, more than just uh, whatever the images are that they, they happen to stumble upon. I hear two things in there. One, uh, a deep and abiding care for our young folks, youth and adults who have bodies that are God-given and holy, full of of not just ability or or investment, but worth before they do any work. So I just want to ask, you know, you've done all this studying, and I think about 
all of the different theological controversies of the early church of, of first understanding itself as a sect of Judaism and then becoming different from Judaism and then mm -hmm. trying to figure out what is the correct or acceptable dogma of Christianity. And so there's lots of things that, you know, Gnosticism gets thrown out and all of yeah. these kinds of things, which is obviously not a huge fan of the body. Uh, so I wonder what theologies you think should inform a healthy understanding of our embodiment. I think uh, the term that I have been trying to find a good representative text for in classical Christianity, I haven't quite landed on anything yet, but is the whole idea of stewardship. Uh, stewardship of the body, I think, is probably something that people can kind of grasp. The body is a gift. Starting with the idea of the body as a gift means that there is an inherent value there that is sometimes not communicated. Uh, or at least not received somehow. Gregory of Nyssa, who was a, a theologian in the fourth century and, and had almost a mystic, I, I'm really drawn to his work. He wrote an entire uh, treatise on the human body. And one of the things that's, in that's interesting is that he drew on medical knowledge of the time. Of course, it's not the way we think about the body now. And then really gave each of those kind of a spiritual dimension. So I'm always on the lookout for things like that. One of the things that does happen from time to time is that we'll say, look, Jesus had a body, and particularly in Eastern Orthodoxy. The incarnation of the sun sanctified all matter. You know, and I, and I love the idea, even the water, you know, the story about um, about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan. One of the central teachings of that uh, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy is that the cleansing went the other way. It went from Jesus to the water, not from the water to Jesus. And so all the water was purified. And so the, the very entering into the world of the sun in the form of a body made all things holy. And so they, they've got a great, a much better attitude about that in the East than, than we've had in the in Western theology. What does this all mean in the time of Advent? Because I think Advent is this wonderful reminder that bodies are okay, if not a reflection of the divine. Um, like I love, I love O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And also just the name of Emmanuel of God, just like being with us in the, like in the midst of everything awful, but also everything good. And I was curious if you're also, if you've also been chewing on that in this time of Advent. Everything that happens Every Sunday in Advent involves something physical that happens to somebody. Zechariah loses his ability to talk and Mary gets uh, announced that she's expecting and, and people walk through the Jordan River and, uh, you know, all these other things that happen. They travel. Uh, and so you can't have Advent unless you've got uh, a physical thing happening. I had never thought about those other aspects that way before, right? Like thinking about the incarnation of, of Jesus showing up, but how every Sunday in those readings, there is something physical going on. There's, there's God showing up in, in one way or another. That's amazing. So our last question uh, is a question that we ask all of our interviewees across all of our seasons. Um, wait, I don't know if I want to ask that question yet. Do we want to ask the, I think we want to ask one more question. Do we want to ask one more question, Mary Claire? Can we fold them together? Can we do a little you do it. You you fold it. You, I, oh, I want to watch you work. Goodness. Yep, go for it. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I was going to put all the heavy lifting on you. So we have in here a little bit, we're going to ask you about music because um, okay. he knows you and that 
you are a musician yourself and how that can teach us a little bit about embodiment. But then we also have this idea that vocation is more than just our jobs. It's like who Mm. we are just as a whole finding meaning in the work that we do. And the question that we ask everyone towards the end of the podcast or the last question is what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid? So now the heavy lifting is on you to see if you want to meld in music <laughs> with being a child. I considered being a musician and there I had plenty of encouragement. If I had gone into music, I would undoubtedly have been like a high school music teacher, which would have been fine. I would have, I would have loved doing that probably because I worked with young people and being involved with music and so forth. I was also thinking maybe I should make a run for it in the popular music world, you know, try to get a rock band together and just cobble together the, the things you need to do to do that. I had a conversation with somebody who did that professionally one time and was just picking up some advice. And, and he, sa- he said, I got to ask you a question. And I said, what? And he goes, do you feel lucky? And I went, not particularly. <laughs> and he said, just keep that in mind because that's that's how just about everybody that's ended up on the charts is there because they got lucky, really lucky at some point. I thought maybe I maybe that's that's not the best path for me. I will say maybe one of the things I did know about vocation as a kid was that there were some some options. I, I say that because I've run into too many teenagers who probably come by this honestly because of the times, but they're nervous that they are destined for one thing out there. And that if they don't find that one thing, they're sunk. And I think that is slightly a product of of just the way the culture has progressed. This Canadian uh, philosopher, Charles Taylor, talks about this is this time as he calls it the age of authenticity. I'm not, I'm starting to think that may not be the best term because what he means by that is uh, that this is an age where young people are on their own in terms of forming their identity. So quite the contrast from, say, the Middle Ages, you know, where your identity, including your religion and your role in family and life, was basically handed to you. And you really had very little option and say you had a few choices here and there if you um, came across uh, some uh, some resources. But basically, you know, for 98% of the people, your identity was not something that you were going to be able to have a lot of hand in. The, you know, the Mary Oliver poem that ends, uh, so what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? In the Middle Ages, nobody was asking you what you're going to do with your one wild and precious life. <laughs> they were telling you what you were going to do. Well, in modern times, it really is. That's the question. And young people are more than ever left, kind of left on their own with this kind of terrifying, and I see it all the time among the among young people I work with, this kind of terrifying burden of saying, I've got to put my whole life together on my own. I think as a young person, I already kind of had an idea that God was more creative than that, and that we had some, some possibilities ahead of us that could be experimented with, and that... Um, kind of whatever we would look after that was going to be a faithful response to the gifts we had been given was going to be something God could take and run with. Don't remember knowing that in quite that form when I was a child, but I had an idea. To be fair, I mean, I was born into a church family. 
and I was born into a musical family. So it's it's a little disingenuous for me to try to say I, I kind of discovered all of this on my own. My father was a Lutheran pastor, uh, died young, but I still had that sense of what, what things were. My mother was a church organist and a school teacher. Uh, so uh, I grew up, became a Lutheran pastor, married a church organist, <laughs> had children who were musicians and things like that. So a lot of that stuff is a kind of, does respond to things that kind of came naturally to me. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being with us today yeah. and for sharing with us and for just, you know, talking about what it means for Jesus to have a body and for us to have bodies and figure out what it means to be called in the midst of these bodies. So blessings on the rest of your ministry to the Virginia thank Synod, you. to Roanoke to you College. All. Thank yep. you. Say hello to everybody at the seminary for me. Will do. We I will. will. Thanks to the generous Philip N. Knutson Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministries, Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Your co-hosts are Drew Tucker and Mary Claire Kunkel, as well as your producer, it's me, Mary Claire Kunkel. And our seaworthy theme music is brought to you by Shane Ivers. Thanks for listening.